How can one have joy and agony at the same time? Isn't that a paradox? Isn't that an oxymoron? Isn't that impossible to have joy and pain, joy and agony, joy and affliction all at the same time? Well, I think sometimes the answer to that question is yes. It's, it's impossible. Let me give a couple of examples. How about the topic of running? You know, running. I, I don't think that you can have joy in, at all while you're running. Like I have said for many years, no one is happy when they run. It is 100% agony. Like, oh, I, now, I'm not against exercise. I, I like to exercise, but I hate running. Like there is no joy at all for me. So it, for my situation, I can't have both. It's, it's 100% agony. How about another example that we're probably familiar with? How about going to the dentist? There, there's, now, if you are in the dental field, I mean no disrespect, but it is no fun going to the dentist at all. It is a drill and whatever happens, the suction thing, like it's, it's pretty terrifying sometimes. How about another polarizing example? How about Disney World, right? You talk to some people, it's the happiest place on earth. It's 100% joy. But you talk to the mom and dad with four or five kids that have been screaming the 97 degree, 100% humidity, heat, that becomes kind of agonizing. But what Paul is saying here is, you know what, he's like, actually, he's saying, you know what, sometimes, most of the time, if we are in Christ, you can have both. You can have extreme affliction, you can have suffering, you can have pain in your life, but you can also have a great deal of joy. And this is what Paul is going to, to say. And we're going to see this come through in our text. We're going to really see the fuel behind this in Paul's life. What is the fuel of Paul's suffering? What is the fuel of Paul's ministry? And this is really the outline that I want to build for our time together. I want to talk about, first of all, in verse number 27, I want to talk about the hope that we have in Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then I want to talk about the fuel of Paul's sufferings. I want to talk about the fuel of Paul's ministry I'm going to tie it together with some application at the end. But we're, this is going to be the outline of our time together today. But we will see time after time that Paul finds himself in these kinds of positions. So if there's anyone who's qualified to talk about joy and pain simultaneously, it would be Paul. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and, and hop to our text and see what Paul says at the end of this chapter, verses 24 through 29. Paul writes, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking for Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy as he powerfully works within me. Now, this is the foundation that I want to build on today. This is in verse number 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I, I would suppose maybe another way you've heard this described before, maybe defined, is one's union with Christ. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. This is essentially what Paul is talking about in verse number 27. One's union with Christ. 
And I really appreciate how one notable scholar uh, kind of defined union with Christ for us. He says this, union with Christ is the phrase used to summarize several different relationships between believers and Christ, through which every Christian receives every benefit of salvation. These relationships include the fact that we are in Christ, Christ is in us, we are like Christ, and we are with Christ. Now this is the treasure, these are the riches that that Paul is writing about. It is one's union with Christ, Christ in us, we in Christ. So a natural question that you may be thinking is one that, that I thought of as well as why is union with Christ a treasure or riches? Why is this such a big deal in the heart, the mind of Paul? Why, would, why is Paul so, so excited about our union, his union with Christ? Now there could be many answers to this question, but let me just offer a couple just for our consideration this evening. I think one of the reasons Paul was so excited was because every stage of redemption is given to us because we are in Christ. I think that's why Paul was so excited. For example, we are called to salvation. This is all wrapped up in our union with Christ. I like what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22. He says, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he was free, was called a bondservant of Christ. He would also go on to say in Ephesians, In Christ we have every spiritual blessing. He would say again further in Ephesians chapter 1, in Christ we have forgiveness of sins, we have redemption, we have lavished love that God has shown us. In other words, we have new life because we are in Christ. That's a big deal to Paul. We have a lot of spiritual blessing because of our union with Christ. We'll also notice because of our union with Christ, us being in him, him in us, us with Christ, we also can grow in sanctification. Paul would say again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We have, we can, we have the ability to grow in Christ because we are in Christ. We have union with him. I think Paul is really excited because of the benefits we have, uh, 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 the redemptive benefits we have in Christ. But I also think he's excited because in Christ, we also bear the, the good fruit when we are in Christ. Good fruit, good actions. We produce good things. Now, this is not a matter of uh, whether or not we will produce fruit. This is a matter of not what kind of fruit are we going to be producing. See, as individuals, as people, we produce things in our life. Some, some of it's good, some of it is bad, but we will produce fruit in our life. But when we are in Christ, our union with him, it allows us to bear good fruit. I think of what Jesus said in John chapter 15. I love what he is teaching here. John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's a powerful statement. That's a powerful statement. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you want life, if you want growth, if you want to be green, if you want good fruit, be in me. That's what Jesus said. Abide in me. Stay in me. It, it reminds me of what would happen if you were to take a lamp. If you have a lamp, a lamp, we all know what a lamp is designed to do. It is designed to produce light. In whatever room you desire, desire to put it in. So this, let's say this is my 
my end table, my coffee table, wherever I put a lamp, and my lamp is here. It may look great. It's got the right color scheme. My feng shui is clicking. Like, it just goes with the room, right? But that's not, that's not what the lamp was designed to do. It's not designed just to be a beautiful piece of decor in my home. It can function as that, but that's not why it was designed. It was designed to be something that produces light. And it can only do that when it's plugged in. But if it's not plugged in, if it's not receiving the power, I can click it on and it's going to do nothing. But if I can plug that lamp into the outlet, have this energy running through the lamp, up through the wires, into the filament that ultimately lights up the bulb, then it's doing what it has been designed to do. In other words, it's producing a good fruit. Now, the lamp is producing a bad fruit when it's not producing light, but when it's producing light, it's doing what it's designed to do. Likewise, you and I, when we are in Christ, that's what gives us the empowerment to produce good fruit in our life. We have to be plugged into, firmly abiding in the power source of Christ, if you will. And I pray that I never neglect this, that we never neglect the powerful doctrine of our union with Christ. It is a power source of spiritual strength for the believer. And as we remember the truth that we need to be plugged into Christ, it, it, it motivates us, it forces us to lean further and further into him. Because we know that apart from him, as he rightly says in John 15, 5, apart from him, we can do nothing. We need him. And this is the fuel that, that motivates, that, 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 that kind of fuels Paul's suffering. This is the second bullet point that I want to talk about, the fuel of Paul's suffering. So again, point one, we're talking about our union with Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Point two, the fuel of Paul's suffering. Notice what he says in verse number 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And as I said, it's always puzzled me why Paul can find joy in agony. He can find joy in his sufferings. I never understood this. But as I began to just kind of unpack this and begin to dive into other areas and places and scriptures where Paul has said, I am rejoicing in my suffering, I was able to discover a couple of common denominators. There's two things that we'll see each time Paul says, I'm rejoicing in my suffering. The first common denominator we will see is the church. The church. Paul was always concerned about the well-being of the people in the church. He wanted them to be safe and free to do what God has called them to do. So if Paul needed to suffer and, and go and endure affliction for them to be able to do that, Paul was willing to do that. That's what he would do. And notice what Paul says in verse number four, uh, 24. He says, now I'm joyful in my suffering. I'm rejoicing in my sufferings. Why? For your sake. For your sake. This is what Paul says. It's for you. Paul found joy in suffering because it was a benefit to the church. They were growing. They were developing Christ-like character in their heart, as was Paul, through suffering, through the agony that he was going through. And this brought Paul joy. And what's interesting is many, many times when a believer goes through a period of agony, a period of suffering, it oftentimes brings them closer to Christ. This happens many, many, many times. Not always. You know, sometimes there are things in our life that draw us away from Christ. But many times suffering can bring us to a closer relationship 
with Christ. Again, centered around Christ and you, the hope of glory. And because of one's closeness, because of growth in one's heart, they're able to bless others, be a blessing to others. Therefore, Paul was rejoicing. So we see Paul is, is happy because the church is benefiting. That's the first common denominator that I saw. The second one that I saw was, it's for the glory of Christ. For the glory of Christ. Paul was excited because God was receiving glory because of his suffering. And you probably noticed a phrase at the end of verse 24 that I feel like needs a little bit of discussion. Um, this, this phrase has actually been debated by scholars for many years. One scholar actually said this was the most debated passage in the entire Bible. So this is why I'm super qualified to talk about this because I'm just freshly out of seminary, right? But Paul says this, In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Now as you were reading that, you may have asked yourself as I did, what does Paul mean? What, is, what does he mean here? Is he actually saying that the sacrifice, the atonement of Christ was not enough? It was insufficient somehow? Did it, was it incomplete? Did it not reach where it actually has been proclaimed that it reaches? And so to build the full picture of what's happening, let's talk about what Paul did not say. Let's talk about Paul, what he's not saying. Paul is not saying that somehow the atonement of Christ was incomplete or unsatisfactory. That is not what Paul is saying. That statement would not only be heresy, but would also contradict hundreds of passages of Scripture that clearly state that Jesus' atonement was enough for salvation. Like, there's so many theological like, discrepancies here if Paul is actually saying this, that his, his theology unfolds if this is what he means. But this is not what Paul means. So not only would he contradict himself, he's contradicting other passages of Scriptures as well. Many times in his writing, Paul emphatically declares that Jesus' death burial and resurrection is the only means for salvation. Right? Passages like Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. There are many, many other passages that we could go to that speak of the sufficiency of Christ's atonement by his death, burial, and resurrection. So Paul is not saying that somehow this is insufficient. Okay, we, have to, we have to say that right off the get-go. Another thing that I think Paul is clearly not saying is that one must self-harm in order to accomplish their own salvation. Paul's saying you don't need to brutalize yourself in order to pay for your sin somehow. Paul's not suggesting that at all because if this were true, then Christ died for no reason at all. We have salvation. We have eternal life because Jesus, the God-man, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, and rose again three days later. That is why when we believe in him by faith, that is why we have salvation because of his work already accomplished on the cross. So Paul's not saying somehow that is insufficient by his death or by our brutalization of ourselves. We are saved through Christ alone and nothing else. So what is Paul actually saying then? Here's, here's what I believe Paul is saying in a nutshell. Paul is saying that his work as an apostle of Christ and a minister of the gospel is an extension of Christ's work. 
He's identifying his own sufferings, Paul's own sufferings, closely with that of Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, Jesus suffered for me once and for all. He did this for me. Therefore, I'm going to, I'm going to endure afflictions, persecutions, tribulations for him. See, it's important to note that the Greek word for afflictions is never used anywhere in the New Testament for Christ's redemptive suffering. It's not what, it's not what Paul's saying. It is referencing the tribulations that believers will suffer because they are identifying with Christ. And so as Paul battles the domain of darkness, as you guys learned about just a couple of weeks ago, he recognized that the afflictions that he and the church are or will go through is a fulfillment of the last days. This is what was going to happen. This is what was predicted to happen. And so Paul's not only thinking about the afflictions that the church is going through now, what he may be going through now, he's also thinking about eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. So Paul is viewing what is happening, happening through him through his eschatological theology. He's, he's looking through the lens of eschatology. He's like, I'm, I'm ready for Jesus to come back. I'm so excited. So I have to suffer for a little while. Yes, I can endure it. I can handle it because Jesus is coming back. This also makes sense why Paul found so much joy. It's going to be short term. I find joy in suffering because Jesus is coming back. Paul was so excited about this. It reminds me of, of the feeling. This may not be a perfect analogy, but it reminds me of the feeling of when my wife and I were expecting our children. I have three sons. I have a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 9-year-old. And there was always a level of anxiety and fear and just kind of worry of what was going to happen during the, the labor slash delivery of, of my children. And so we knew, we knew going into this, there's going to be some pain. There's going to be some tears. There's going to be some agony. There's going to be some moments when we just want it to be over. But why did we endure? Why did we keep walking through? Because we knew the joy that came after the pain. We knew the joy that came after the agony. And it was so amazing to hold like this little seven-pound loaf of bread in my arms and, and hold him and know that I, he can do nothing for me, but I love him so, so much. It's kind of like that. Paul's saying, yeah, it's going to be painful. We're going to endure afflictions, but this is an extension of us having union with Christ. Christ suffered once for all. We can endure sufferings on this life as well. We're going to go through persecution and tribulation. Let's endure it. Well, Paul was fired up about this. So this was his union with Christ. That was the fuel of Paul's suffering. That He was in Christ, Christ in him. He was counting it as a privilege to suffer for him. There's a closeness that came to him as he suffered for Christ. And as we've been stating throughout this entirety, when we suffer, it brings us closer to Christ. But we find joy because of our union with him. Which leads us to our third principle. So the, his union with Christ was the fuel of his suffering. And I think Paul's union with Christ was also the fuel of his ministry. It, it was also because of his understanding why Paul was able to share in verses 25 and the beginning part of 27. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. 
You know, there are many adjectives I think we could use to describe or define Paul. One that frequently comes to my mind is focused. This guy was laser focused on his mission. He was laser focused on what God had given him to do. He was called to be an apostle to take the message of Christ to the Gentiles. And you see his focus again here in the text. He says, I became a minister according to the stewardship of God. Now this word stewardship in the Greek is oikonomia. And it means a commissioning. It means he's been given a great responsibility to, to carry out the duties that God has placed in his life. It's not just managing, which is another form of stewardship, but it's a different level. There's a weightiness to this stewardship. It's a commissioning that God has said, I want you to go to the ends of the earth and proclaim my message. Make the word of God fully known. And I love that Paul is taking this so seriously. He did not take this lightly. And he says, I'm going to make this fully known. I'm going to proclaim this to the ends of the earth to the end of my life. What I love about this is you begin to examine the life of Paul from, from this moment, from, from the, really from his conversion up to this point, even through his death, you see that Paul was able to live up to his high expectations that he set for himself. See, on his final days on earth, Paul is writing to this young pastor named Timothy. And in one of his final testimonies, Paul gives Timothy and the reader some insight on how he felt like he lived up to this commissioning, this responsibility in his life. This is what he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 7. He says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I, I love that. I love that. What a, great, what a great final testimony. What a great final word to share with somebody. I love that Paul confidently says, I have fought the good fight. And yes, there were some days when Paul got punched in the mouth, but he stayed focused on the mission. He says, I, I finished the race. I'm sure there were days where Paul just wanted to stop running. It's, it's, it's hard today. But he said, focused on the mission. And I love that he remained faithful because he was focused on the mission. His faith was put to the test time and time again, yet his focus was on Christ. And why was Paul so focused? Why, why, what was his passion burning inside of Paul? Number one, it's, it's a union with Christ. And his union with Christ, knowing what Jesus had accomplished and what he had experienced in his own life, now he wanted to take this message to the Gentiles. He wanted the mystery of the gospel that had been revealed to him, shared with them. This is what he says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, understand, this mystery that Paul's talking about, it's revealed only by the Holy Spirit in one's life. So for the Colossian church who were Gentiles, the mystery wasn't going to be found in rituals or false doctrine. It was going to be found through the work of the Spirit alone. See, it is the work of the Spirit that regenerates a heart it's a work of the Spirit that builds faith into one's life, that illumines Scripture to one's heart. And therefore, it was paramount that Paul preached the gospel. It was the only way they could understand the mystery, to, is, is to proclaim the mystery of Christ, which had been revealed. And Paul was so focused on that. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That was his message for himself, and that was his message for the Gentiles. The only hope that they have, that we have, for knowing, believing, and understanding the gospel is the Holy Spirit 
calling someone from death to life. That's how it's possible. And this is why Paul continues by saying, Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Again, you see Paul's missional heart. And you see the union that he has with Christ permeating his pen. Paul says, all of my energy, all of my effort is going, is coming from Christ. And it's allowing me to do three things. I'm proclaiming Christ. I'm going to warn and teach as much as I can. And I'm going to do whatever I can to help people grow. All fueled by his union with Christ. So it was Paul's union that fueled his suffering. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it was, Paul's, it was Paul's fuel for his ministry as well. So what does this mean for us? What, what are we investing our energy in, first of all? What, what's our focus? What are we living life doing? Where, where's, our, where's our laser focus spiritually? So how do we apply this? What does this mean for us? How do we look at the fuel that powered Paul's life and apply it to our own? So to end our time together, I just want to give us five ways that we can practically live out our union with Christ. Here's application number one. Have a laser focus to share the gospel with those who aren't believers. Have a laser focus for evangelism. Evangelism is a term used to define preaching the gospel, the good news. It actually comes from the same Greek word in the New Testament and literally means gospeling. I'm going to be gospeling people. I'm going to share the good news of Christ. So when we evangelize, we're quite literally gospeling people. We're, we're just letting the love of Christ, the, the message of Jesus, pour through us. Of course, it starts by knowing the bad news, right? We've got to know the bad news, that we're sinners, that there's a payment of our sin, death, which is eternal separation from God. If we live in a state of rebellion and that we cannot earn our redemption on our own, we can't do it. Nothing we do. The Gentiles needed to hear this. Not about ritual, not about sacrifice of your own. It's all about the work of Jesus. But the good news is that Jesus, fully God, fully man, lived a sinless life, conquering every temptation, died, yet without sin, died on a cross, appeasing God's righteous wrath, was buried in a tomb, rose again three days later, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, reigning in heaven. And through the work of Christ, as we place our faith in him, he frees us from the penalty of our sin and the clutches of sin's power in our life. And this is the message that Paul preached. This was a story he wanted to tell. Paul knew that if one was going to experience life change, was going to be able to experience Christ in you, the hope of glory, it would be because they heard the message of the gospel. We too should share the gospel message. When you're at work or with friends or at the Y or wherever you spend your time, Share how the gospel changed your life. Hey, this is what Jesus has done for me. Share how you're still growing. Be vulnerable. Hey, this is some area, these are some areas in my life that I still need to improve on. Share what you're learning. This is what the Holy Spirit is impressing upon my heart. And do it with a passion that, that just has this intensity that Paul had, that boasts of God's amazing grace in our life. Let's evangelize. Let's spread the gospel. Let's have a laser Focus. Remember, we're in Christ. Our union should motivate our evangelism. That's number one. 
Number two, let's wisely use the spiritual gifts God's given us. You know, one of the things I love about Paul, and one that we see quite clearly in the text, is, is that he knew what his gifting was. Right? He, he knew that he was a very gifted preacher. So motivated by his union with Christ, he wanted to make the mystery of God, the gospel, fully known. That was his mission. Laser focus on that. So I think it's a great model for us that we too should, should wisely identify what our spiritual gifts are and begin building the kingdom of God where, wherever we may be at. So if you have the gift of hospitality, invite someone to your home for a meal. Serve on the coffee team on Monday nights or serve as a greeter on Sunday mornings. There's lots of ways we can exercise the gift of hospitality. Maybe you have the gift of encouragement. Take some time once a week, every other week, whatever time frame you want. Write a, write a handwritten note to somebody saying you're praying for them. I'm thinking about you. Or maybe you just want to meet for coffee. Hey, let's just get together for coffee. I want to hear what's going on in your life. Just share your world with me. I'm interested in hearing that. Maybe it's a text or a phone call just checking in on somebody. You know, if you have the gift of wisdom, wow, pour that into the other person. Allow what God has gifted you to be a blessing to someone else, to spur us on, others on to good works. Let's use our spiritual gifts well and wisely. Number three. Let's find any excuse we can to worship. Let's find any excuse we can to worship. We, we started our time together by talking about the joy that Paul had in spite of his suffering. And I love this heart, and I think it's such a great model for you and I. We should find any reason we can in any situation we find ourselves in to worship. In order to do that well, I think it's helpful to understand what worship is. So let me just share a quick definition of, of, of what I read Earlier this week on this idea of worship, this is one definition that I read. Worship is a submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of ima imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of his will to his, uh, of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. See, simply put, worship is a daily exercise when we submit heart, soul, and mind to the authority of Jesus. I'm giving my life to Jesus in every area of my life. That is worship. And there are many ways that we can see this facilitated through word, through singing through uh, giving. There are so many ways that we can worship, but it must be done with the heart to bring glory to our Father. And in our life journey, let's be like Paul. Let's find any excuse we can to worship, to lift high the name of Christ. Number four, we need to understand that suffering may be a reality in our life. Not so much application, more of an exhortation. But we need to understand that suffering may be a reality in our life. And it's really not a matter of if, but when. It's really not a matter of if, but when. There's going to come a day when suffering is walked through our door. And it's going to look different from person to person. However, it's also a reality where we can lean into Christ. Right? Because if we are following Jesus, we're going to suffer. Maybe it'll be because of another person. They speak behind your back, gossip. They wound you with words. Maybe it'd be... It comes by way of a job loss. Maybe it's sickness. 
Maybe it's some level of persecution as we share the gospel, as we evangelize. But we have to understand it, it may come through our door. However, we also need to understand in the middle of it, we have a reason to rejoice. And if we suffer for the sake of Christ, we can also give glory to Jesus as we have been chosen by him to identify in his sufferings. So suffering may be a reality, but it's also a reason to rejoice. Application number five, rely on the power of Christ in you. At the end of chapter one, we read these words from Paul. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. See, Paul was able to do what he did because of the power of Christ working in him. And I want to encourage us to remember this as well. We do what we do. We're able to accomplish what we accomplish because of the power of Christ working in us. So we can only worship because of Christ in us. We can only use our spiritual gifts because of Christ in us. We can only endure suffering well because of Christ in us. Us. And that brings us back to the main thrust of the sermon tonight. Christ in you, the hope of glory. All revolves around our union with Christ. So may this truth empower us to proclaim the gospel ferociously, passionately, proudly. Let may, may it fuel our growth in Christ, our growth in wisdom. And may we fully, continually, fully rely on the power of of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this powerful text. Um, inspired by your spirit as Paul penned these words. God, thank you for the reality that it means for us that we can worship you, that we can grow to look more and more like Christ every single day, that we can spread the gospel message, that we can bear good fruit in our life. God, at every Spiritual blessing is given to us because of our union with Christ. What a powerful, powerful uh, passage of Scripture that we were able to walk through tonight. May we, this be a reality. May it be brought back to our memory uh, over the next few weeks, months, years, however long it may be, Lord. God, I pray that you have received glory from this. God, may we worship you with our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.